been thinking all morning, Almighty God, of your faithfulness, your goodness, your love, of the redemption that there is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we praise you again for it. And we pray simply that by the power of your Spirit, you might open our minds, that we might comprehend a little more of your love and goodness this morning. And that you might open our hearts, that we might receive and experience that love. And then change our wills, that we might show it forth in the way we love one another as your people, and in the way we love the world in which you've placed us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 130. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins." be a great help if you might keep that reading open in front of you. Some friends of mine were on holiday one winter by the coast. Uh, One of them decided to show how tough he was to his friends, and so he stripped off his clothing and uh, decided to go for a swim. It was winter, the sea was cold, but he was tough, and so out into the depths he went. Uh, When he got about 50 meters out, he turned around and started waving at his friends on the shore. And they all thought he was being friendly, and so they waved back for a short while. Then he started waving with both arms, and they thought, oh, look, he's being funny. Now he's pretending to drown, and so they laughed, and uh, they got out their phones to start filming him. And then he waved for just a little bit too long, and his head started going underwater, and they realized that maybe this wasn't a joke after all. And to this day, there's a happy ending. No uh, friends were harmed in the the making of this illustration. To this day, they are very grateful that they realized just in time, and so now they can tell this story over dinner and make their friends laugh uh, because of what was just a near miss, genuine terror. Uh, You'll see why reading Psalm 130 reminded me of the story. Verse 1 starts, Out of the depths... I cry to you, O Lord. Not the excited squeal of a child in a paddling pool, but the the desperate cry of one who is floundering and in fear of their life. This language of drowning is quite familiar in the Psalms. In Psalm 69, King David speaks of waters that have come up to his neck. He speaks of sinking down into the miry depths. There's no foothold. He speaks of deep waters that engulf him. But the difference between those occasions and this is that uh, in those places, the drowning is a metaphor for the persecution that comes from God's enemies. 
But here in Psalm 130, the, the enemy that David has in mind, the enemy that our writer has in mind, I should say, is not external, but internal. It's not the threat of opposition that forces him to cry out to the Lord in this way, but a profound awareness of a, of a sin problem in his own heart. Uh, the context of verse 3 makes that clear. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? Again, that makes this psalm stand out within the, the little cluster of psalms called the Songs of Ascent in which it sits. If you um, look at the headings of all of these psalms from 120 through to 134, you'll see they all say a song of ascent, a song of ascent. Um, that subtitle tells us they were sung by the people of God as they made their annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. For them, they were making a physical pilgrimage. They downed tools, they walked with their friends and family to go to the temple, and they sang of all that the Lord had done for them as his people and how they wanted to follow him. Uh, for us, they speak to us today, not on a, a physical pilgrimage to Jerusalem, but on a, a spiritual pilgrimage to God's new heaven and new earth, the place we know we're going if we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And together, the Psalms remind us that life as God's pilgrim people is far from a bed of roses. If you were to read through them this afternoon, if you had a few quiet moments, you'd see uh, lots and lots of talk of suffering and trials. Back in Psalm 120, the psalmist describes being surrounded by lying lips and deceitful tongues. In 123, God's people endure ridicule and contempt from the arrogant and proud in the nations around them. 124, enemies who would swallow them alive if they could. In 125, there's the scepter of wickedness that remained over them. They were an oppressed people. But to this point, the focus again has been on problems that are out there. Now, though, all of that changes. And we meet a problem that is bigger by far. And the lesson for us is that far and away, the greatest problem that any pilgrim could face, whether they're walking on dusty roads to Jerusalem or they're running the race towards the heavenly Jerusalem, far and away, the biggest problem for any of us would be the problem of sin in our hearts. We tend not to believe that as a society, of course, if we talk of sin at all. We tend to laugh it off as a joke. We think we can overcome it with a bit of penance or if we try a bit harder. But our psalmist has realized that any solution to the problem of, of sin that starts within us is going to be doomed before it gets off the start line. And so out of the depths, he cries to the Lord. But you may have spotted as we read the psalm that although it begins with this deep desperation of verse 1, by the end, there's a quiet confidence about the psalm. As he reflects on his own condition, as he urges others to put their hope in God as he has done. That transformation from one to the other is pretty stark. And what we're going to do this morning is zoom in on three truths about God that have made that transformation possible. Um, Alec Materi, in one of his books on the Psalms, refers to them as three companions of the Lord. I've loved 
reading that, because in the psalm, each of them is said to be with the Lord. And so here's our first point this morning. With the Lord is forgiveness. And our hope and prayer would be that as we read this psalm, as we think of these truths of God, so this transformation to confidence and service, God will work in us by his Spirit. Let me read from verse 3 again. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. The the word for sins here is a word that often refers to the the sum total of mankind's rebellion against us. Not just the the bad things that we do, but the, the wrong people that we are on the inside. You know how if you get a a piece of wood and you leave it to soak in water for a long period of time, then when you take it out, it will be all warped and twisted. This word is saying that by nature, that's what, what all of us are like in our hearts. We've inherited a nature that is warped. We ought to love God. We ought to delight in him. That's what we're made for. It's what's good for us. But our inbuilt drift is to love sin and to delight in sin instead. And here the point is that the combination of that sinful nature and our freely chosen sinful acts mean that we simply cannot stand before the presence of our great God. That little refrain of not being able to stand crops up in a few places in the Bible. In 1 Samuel, it's the the holiness of God that makes it impossible Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? In 1 Kings, the the issue is the glory of the Lord. We're told the priest could not stand to minister before the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. In Psalm 76, the issue is God's righteous anger. It's you alone, Lord, who is to be feared. Who can stand before you when you're angry? Because if God were not holy, our sin wouldn't offend him. If he were not righteous, he might turn a blind eye to it. But he is holy and he knows. And to be absolutely clear, he hates sin and is angered by it. Psalm 5 says, you're not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. And that is why the psalmist is right to cry out. It's not a, a subjective feeling of shame that comes because he's, he's yet to free himself from societal expectations. It's not a, a defect in his DNA that needs to be ignored. It's a disease that needs to be cured, an objective reality of guilt for which he will one day as will all of us have to answer before the throne of Almighty God. But if verse 3 is about the impossibility of standing before God according to our own merit, verse 4 is about the possibility that is afforded to us by his mercy. The psalmist says, but, it's a wonderful but, isn't it? But with you there is forgiveness. It's literally, but with you there is the forgiveness. Because this forgiveness is the real deal. It's sufficient to meet the need of verse 3 in the fullest measure. 
It's a forgiveness that can both satisfy the divine nature and set the sinner free. Nehemiah says God is the God of forgiveness. That forgiveness isn't just something that God does, it's an expression of who he is. And when God chooses to forgive someone, our three things happen at least. Our, our guilt and punishment are dealt with by another. Our sin is taken away as far as the east is from the west, and our relationship with God is restored. Uh, at this point in the Bible, the, the, the writer of the psalm doesn't yet know the great lengths that God will have to go to to achieve that forgiveness. But he knows the solution lies in God, and so he trusts in him. And of course, our own position is more privileged by far. What he hoped for, what he longed for, we know we experience. When the Apostle Paul was preaching in Acts, he said, my friends, I, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. He put it even more succinctly to the Colossians. In Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And it was as Jesus died on the cross, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that the guilt of as many as would ever believe in him was dealt with definitively by him. It was as he who knew no sin became sin for us that God made the decision that he would never again remember our sins, not one of them. It was as he became a curse for us that we were restored to relationship with our Father in heaven so that now we can stand. Again, in the Old Testament, it was the, it was the priests, sometimes the prophets. They were the people who could stand before the Lord here it's all of God's people who are singing together that because there is forgiveness with the Lord, we can stand before him. We can serve him with reverence. Um, I was uh, leading a book group in St. Andrews with a group of men who'd all been in church for many, many years. We were reading a chapter of a book about um, justification, this great truth that we're thinking about now. And I thought, well, they're all going to say, well, we've heard all this before, so what about it? And it, it was speaking about how God looks at us now. And because all of the perfection of Jesus has been given to us, when God looks at us now, he doesn't see our wrong and our sin. He sees the perfection of Jesus credited to our account. It was a great chapter, and I got excited, but I thought, they're going to say, oh, we've seen it all before. And one after the other, they went round and they said, it just, I really find it hard to believe that, because it just seems so good to be true, too good to be true. They'd been hearing sermons on it for 30, 40 years. It just seems too good to be true, doesn't it? Too good to be true. And so we've got a truth that is at one and the same time often feels too good to be true. But it is true of us this morning. There is full forgiveness with the Lord. And yet, at the same time, it's a truth that we can take for granted. And how we're capable of doing both at the same time, I don't know. But many of us are. We disbelieve it because it's almost too good to be true. And yet we take it for granted. But it is true. Because Jesus, the, the ultimate pilgrim, blazed the trail for us. Because he opened through his death a new and living way 
to his new creation. It means that in him, we can draw near to God in full assurance of faith and stand before him. Because we do it clothed not in our own merit, but in his. And it is in remembering and deliberately recalling that truth to mind that our psalmist shifts from being an anguished wreck in verse 1 to being an encourager of God's people in verse 7. There was nothing that qualified him for that role apart from God and the forgiveness that there is with him. But neither was any qualification needed. And the same is true of us today. First companion, with the Lord there is forgiveness. Second, with the Lord there is unfailing love. It's there in verse 7. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is unfailing love. Again, literally the unfailing love. This, the, the love by which all other loves will be judged and against which all other loves are to be compared. And again, it takes us right to the very heart of who God is. The word translated unfailing love, and depending on the translation you've got in front of you, will be rendered as something like steadfast love or loving kindness or abounding in love. It's part of the name by which God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34. The Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, this word, and faithfulness. And as we read through the Old Testament, this unfailing love of God is linked specifically time and again to his ongoing care and protection of his people. Not a God who just saves people and then leaves them to their own devices, but a God who in unfailing love leads them and guides them until they reach his holy dwelling place. So the writer to Psalm 118 says, Give thanks to the Lord. For he is good. His unfailing love endures forever. Uh, the closest human parallel we have, I, I guess, is marriage. Uh, Emily and I love doing marriage prep classes for couples in St. Andrews who are getting married. One of the things that we stress is that the love that God calls us to have for one another in marriage isn't just a, a feeling or a sense of desire, but a commitment, a promise and they all look at us uh, and when we talk about how hard it might be to love one another in that way in marriage. And they say, oh, but you don't know because no two people have ever loved each other the way that we love each other. We will be free from any argument ever. And we say, no, really, you need to know. It's not a feeling. It is a commitment. That's why the, the declarations in the marriage service ask for a, a promise in the future rather than in the presence. Not, do you... Uh, love, comfort, honor, and protect her. But will you? And will you do it for better and for worse and for richer and for poorer and in sickness and in health? And the answer is I will, that it is a rock-solid commitment. And uh, a couple make those promises because the love of a wife for a husband, vice versa, it's not meant to be a fluctuating emotion that is only for the good times but a settled commitment. Not I'll take it one day at a time and see how I feel, but I will. Now, we all know that humans fail to love with that sort of unfailing love, even in marriage. And that 
virus of our of self-centeredness reaches even there and it infects our walk with God too. There's a line in Hosea that says, what shall I, God says, what shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. And we all know that from our own experience, that we don't love God properly. We don't love others properly, not even uh, those we've pledged and promised to love. Doesn't that then just magnify again how wonderful it should be that God would love people like us with a love that is completely free from sin and selfishness and with a love that is unfailing Uh, in any relationship the time your love is tested is when the other lets you down it's easy isn't it to love someone if they're buying you flowers or presents or cooking you dinner it's harder when they've just lost their temper it's harder when they've just broken a promise But God shows his unfailing love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the result is that we can trust. The result of the first companion, we can stand. The result of this one, that we can trust. The psalmist says, I wait, in verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen, wait for the morning more than watchmen, wait for the morning. It's confident, active trust and expectation. He didn't know exactly how God would provide the forgiveness he needed, but that didn't mean that he was without hope. He remembered the Lord's unfailing love. He remembered the promise of the one who would crush the head of the serpent. And as he dwelt on the Lord's unfailing love, so his faith was rekindled and his hope was renewed. I always thought that the point of the watchman in verse 6 was the, the desperation with which a watchman might wait for morning. If you've ever worked the night shift, if you've ever struggled, uh, been awake at night with insomnia as I've been sometimes, you'll know that, that longing for the daylight, just waiting and waiting for it to come. But the watchman doesn't just long for dawn. They know it will come. They know that not even the darkest night will go on forever. And so I reckon this watchman is not just a picture of longing. You must tell me what you think of this afterwards, but of confident expectation as well. And so the psalmist waits with his soul, with his whole being. Not the the teenager lying on a sofa waiting for life to to happen or whatever, but the waiting of the the 100-meter athlete on the start line, poised, waiting for the gun, determined to be ready. He was waiting for Jesus to come the first time. We're waiting for him to return, but still we wait because our citizenship is in heaven. And from there, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, like the psalmist, as we remember the Lord's unfailing love, so our faith, so our hope, so our waiting will be rekindled and renewed. Finally, third companion, with the Lord is full redemption. 
Uh, Martin Luther used to say that Psalm 130 was one of his favorite passages in the whole Bible. Um, he paid it what for him, I think, would be the ultimate compliment in which he said it, it could have been written by the Apostle Paul himself as you, as you read it. I think he thought that was a, a good thing because of the way it, it goes over the, the basic elements of the gospel so, so thoroughly and so compellingly time and again. And we've seen this morning, I think, what he meant by that. We've thought about the problem of our sin and the offer of forgiveness. We've thought about the, the unfailing love that brings hope. And now in verse 7, we get to this idea of full or literally redemption to an abundant degree. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. The language of redemption was familiar to the first readers of the psalm. And every year at Passover, they remembered the way that the Lord had redeemed them from Egypt. And the big idea in redemption is that a price is paid to set someone free from captivity. And so in Exodus, the firstborn lamb died. That was the ransom price so that Israel might be set free from slavery to Pharaoh to serve God. But although God redeemed Israel back in Exodus, the Passover was never meant to be a, a full and final solution to the problem of their sin. It, it freed them from captivity to their external oppressor, Egypt, but not to, uh, from their internal problem of sin. That's why in verse 1, the psalmist is still crying out from the depths. That's why he speaks of redemption as something that God will do in the, in the future in verse 8. Because abundant redemption is with the Lord, but at the time of writing it, it wasn't yet. We, of course, know different. It is in Christ that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The ransom price that secured our redemption was infinite. Peter says it wasn't with perishable things like silver or gold that we were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish and defect. And the freedom it achieved was magnificent. Because as we said earlier, sung earlier, when the sun sets you free, then you are free indeed. Free from the, the penalty and the power of our sin, free to approach God as Father without fear, and free to serve him. That's what the writer is doing in verse 7, and with this we're going to close. Uh, he doesn't start small either. He's refreshed his heart and his soul with these three companions of the Lord, these three great truths about him. And now he turns to the whole people of God, and he says, Israel, you put your hope in the Lord as I have put mine. It's a truth that we need to be reminded, uh, something that we need to be encouraged to do on a daily basis. Could it really be that one death all those years ago could secure abundant redemption? Redemption enough for anyone in this room, no matter what you've done in the past, no matter what others have done to you, that you could be completely forgiven of every sin. Yes, it could be. Yes, it is.
We need our churches to be communities that do verses 7 and 8 to one another. Um, I'm persuaded by this more and more. We need to point one another back to the Lord's unfailing love, back to Jesus on the cross day by day so that we put all of our hope in his word, so that we wait for his return with our whole being. I'm always so encouraged when I see signs of that happening in our own church in St. Andrews, and it's been great these last few months to hear stories of it happening in St. Peter's. And we must pray that God will give us a heart to do that more and more for one another. That this walk, this pilgrimage, isn't just something that we're doing on our own, but something that the Lord has called us to help one another to do. So that we say to one another, put your hope in the Lord. I know how hard life is. Put your hope in the Lord. I'm here with you. Put your hope in the Lord. I'm walking beside you. Put your hope in the Lord. The life of a pilgrim is not easy, but our hope is in the Lord. Final, final thought. Always beware when a preacher says, with this I'm going to close, it means he's forgotten to say something. Uh, One final thought. Uh, Two names for God in the psalm. Do you see that he's called Lord, uh, all capitals? That means he's uh, Yahweh, he's the promise-making, he's the covenant-keeping Lord. And then Lord, little letters, that means he's the sovereign one. And the combination of those two names is why our psalmist can have so much confidence. The one who is pledged to love us with this unfailing love is the one who is the king, the Lord over all. And so in him, we can put our hope because with the Lord, there is forgiveness, there is unfailing love, and there is full redemption. Let's pray together. And our Father, they are simple truths, Uh, shallow enough that even the, the toddlers in Sunday school can understand them. But we know too that none of us have, uh, have ever exhausted their depths. And so we pray very simply that by your Spirit you would touch our hearts, our soul with these truths again this morning. That as we reflect on them, as we meditate on them, as we discuss them with one another after the service at lunches maybe and through the week if we see one another, that you would strengthen us with these wonderful truths about you, these wonderful things that you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, despite how hard it is to keep walking for you, to keep walking with you. We pray that you would strengthen us with hope, that we might wait, that we might fear you, that we might serve you, that we might encourage one another, buoyed on and strengthened, to put our hope in the Lord. And we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.